Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. You were transfigured on the mountain, O Christ God, and you showed your disciples as much of your glory as they could hold. Let your eternal light shine also upon us sinners, O giver of light, glory be to thee. And please join me in welcoming for the first time at the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Bracey Bursnack. So the title of my talk this evening is uh, Catholicism, Communism, and the Common Good. And the Catholic Church's struggle with communism is central to understanding modern church history. Uh, in the two lectures that I will be giving uh, today and then uh, next week, we'll examine the conflict between Catholicism and communism at the level of doctrine and politics with special reference to their rival conceptions of uh, the common good. But before we go any further, perhaps uh, we should define our terms and what we mean exactly by uh, Catholicism, communism, and the common good. Now by Catholicism, of course, we mean the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic, of course, uh, means universal. And the church is called universal because Christ died on the cross to save all men. And the church seeks to extend the grace entrusted to her to all men. The church has a visible hierarchy on earth instituted by Christ that includes priests, bishops, and the Pope, who is Christ's vicar. Pur purpose of that visible hierarchy of the church is to teach us what we need to know about God, to sanctify us by means of his grace through the sacraments, and to govern the church in a way that is conducive to the salvation of souls. Christ established the church to help us live in this life so that we could be with him in the next life for all eternity in heaven. So Catholicism is uh, incarnational, but otherworldly too, pointing us toward the next world. And according to the Catholic Church, the ultimate common good uh, the divine common good, as St. Thomas Aquinas called it, uh, is God, who is the end and destiny of every human being. The political common good, then, according to Catholic social doctrine, uh, is a set of conditions that are conducive to uh, virtue and happiness in this life and uh, eternal happiness in the next life. Communism, then, is a political ideology formulated by Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin that claims that history is governed by a class struggle between 
bourgeoisie and proletariat, or capital and labor, or we could say between uh, employers and employees. The class struggle is supposed to culminate in a violent revolution in which the working class overthrows capitalists and establishes the dictatorship of the proletariat. Lenin's original contribution to Marxism, which is also you know, later called uh, Marxism-Leninism, uh, was to realize that in order to have a successful revolution, it was necessary to have an organization of professional revolutionaries within the Communist Party who would train in secret and prepare the overthrow of the capitalist system. Since capitalism seeks to expand throughout the world and communism defines itself in opposition to capitalism, uh, communism too and the communist revolution must be universal. Now eventually you know, Marx uh, and Lenin define the state as an instrument for the oppression of one class by another. And so eventually after the bourgeoisie is finally defeated, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the state uh, are no longer necessary and the state, uh, he says, withers away, yielding a society in which everyone is equal and no one finds his work toilsome because he gets to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Instead of having those fruits uh, alienated or taken away from him by his employer. And this is the common good, or we could perhaps more precisely call it the collective good as communism sees it. Although it is a collective good that excludes capitalism or any class enemies of the proletariat who must either join uh, the communists or be eliminated. It is a collective good that excludes God because communists believe that material reality is the only reality. And according to this view of the collective good, we should seek happiness in this life because this life is the only life there is. Communism then is a kind of this worldly religion. Uh, it has a doctrine, an institution that promotes uh, this doctrine and word and deed and has, it has a perfect state or end state of human affairs that it hopes to bring about. Communism and capitalism are both systems of belief with different understandings, fundamentally different understandings of the common good for man. Uh, their vision of the common good is for all men, so both uh, Catholicism and communism are universal. Uh, they both have authoritative doctrines and authoritative bodies to uh, teach those doctrines and apply them to the world. But because they're universal systems of belief whose doctrines are almost diametrically opposed, it was practically inevitable that they would come into profound conflict with one another. 
Now, the church actually condemned uh, communism even before the Communist Manifesto was written. Uh, Pi Blessed Pius IX actually condemns uh, communism in an eight, uh, 1846 encyclical, and the Communist Manifesto isn't published uh, by uh, Marx and Friedrich Engels until 1848. So the popes condemned communism uh, sort of before the communists themselves even knew uh, what they were about. And if you look at uh, papal encyclicals in the 19th and even to some extent into the early uh, 20th centuries, uh, the, the distinctions between uh, communism and socialism are not uh, uh, very clear. But again, that's because the distinctions uh, in the minds of Marxists themselves or people who call themselves socialists or communists were not uh, very clear. Those differences became clear later in the 19th century and early in the uh, 20th century as Marxists debated among themselves how the workers' paradise would come about. For our purposes, we can distinguish between communism and socialism in three ways. Uh, and actually, the, I, I should just mention that these, these debates are sharpened by the successful formation of actual Marxist parties in uh, Europe, especially in Germany, which has the largest uh, social democratic party in Europe in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and is an explicitly Marxist party until the mid-1950s. Uh, so they're debating amongst themselves how to interpret it, the um, you know, the authoritative uh, writings of Marx amongst themselves. And um, uh, what emerges out of this debate between the Marxists are, again, these three differences between communism and socialism. So the first difference is that socialists hope to achieve socialism by peaceful means whereas communists believe that socialism uh, as an end state must be achieved by means of a violent revolution because they think that there's no way that the, uh, the bourgeoisie or the capitalists will, uh, will let go of their property. The second difference is that socialists are willing to accept the partial socialization of the means of production, or that we could say the, the partial socialization, or in contemporary terms, the partial uh, nationalization of the economy, whereas communists insist upon a total socialization or total nationalization of the economy. The third difference between socialists and communists is that socialists are willing to work within existing political structures and accept a multi-party political system, just as the German Social Democrats uh, did, whereas communism is founded on the idea of the one-party state. Right? So even uh, when, and especially in the post-World War II period, communists will 
enter in, in Eastern Europe will enter into what are ostensibly coalition governments between them and parties of the left. Really what they're out to establish is uh, a one-party communist state. And it's Lenin who comes up with this idea that, uh, that the communist state has to be a one-party state. And it's really, uh, I would say that and his idea that you need a, a group of professional revolutionaries to carry out the revolution are um, uh, original contributions to political science because this actually works in the sense that if you want to, if you're serious about bringing communism about, you actually do need a professional revolutionary uh, group. And if you want to uh, bring about communism, you actually need one party control. If you, uh, you know, China is no longer communist in an economic or social sense anymore, but they have kept this idea of the fundamental things that Lenin came up with, which are the one-party state and the security apparatus to keep that uh, one party in power. So there's a, you know, an, an insight here that, that Lenin for, uh, I wouldn't say for good or for evil, because it's for evil, has about the way that you can, uh, you can pull this off. Okay, so the church uh, condemns communism and socialism consistently throughout the 19th and early uh, 20th centuries, uh, even if what the popes mean by communism and socialism is not too precise, that's because it wasn't too precise to uh, the socialists and communists themselves until uh, these, again, debates between Marxists in the early 20th century and the actual seizure of uh, power uh, in Russia by the uh, Bolsheviks. So what I want to do then in these two uh, lectures is focus on the conflict between especially Soviet communism and the Catholic Church. It's an extremely broad topic and as I was getting um, ready for this today, it, it, you know, I realized that you could write a 600-page book on this subject and not exhaust it. I mean, there's just so much material. And nobody's written that book yet. I mean, it, partly because, um, you know, we're, we're still getting into the archives of, uh, you know, post-communist states in Eastern Europe. You'd have to know all kinds of languages to be able to do this uh, adequately. Uh, and there, there's just so much material uh, to cover, even, you know, in focusing on Europe as, as uh, you know, I'll be doing, I'll be leaving out all kinds of material um, you know, that pertains to communism in Asia, for example, and, and so on. It's just, uh, I mean, again, you could teach a whole college course on this first semester and not exhaust the topic. So I, I always uh, say when I teach a history course that teaching a hi history course is like, you know, you're committing a series of injustices it could, because you can't possibly do justice to all the topics that you're going to have to cover. So uh, I offer that by way as an apologia for uh, the fact that I won't possibly be able to uh, cover everything that one could cover in, in talking about this subject. Um, so today uh, what I want to do is cover the uh, conflict between the church and communism from the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 
up to the late 1940s and the beginning of the Cold War. And then next week, uh, what we'll do is pick up with the early days of the Cold War and take the story up to uh, the end of the Cold War, at least the, the end of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, and uh, John Paul II's encyclical uh, Centesimus Annus, which comes out in 1991. And then in each of these two lectures, what I'll try to do is, is balance uh, the theoretical issues uh, at stake in the conflict between Catholicism and communism, so their conceptions of uh, the common good. Uh, and then on the other hand, what I will uh, try to do is kind of integrate that with a consideration of uh, how that theoretical conflict played out in uh, practical politics and in the lives of individuals and uh, even nations. So there's conflict between the church and communism from the beginning, although that uh, conflict is not uh, really too acute from 1917 uh, until we get to the end of World War II, because communism, even though it tries to spread itself uh, beyond the borders of the Soviet Union, and even though they have the Communist International, and even though they're trying to you know, support uh, revolution abroad, uh, none of these, um, well, there aren't that many Catholics in the Soviet Union, and so, uh, the, again, the, the issue is not sharpened with that much acuteness, um, at least at the practical level, until we get into World War II and the post-World War II years. The chief way they came into conflict uh, before then was through communist attempts to infiltrate uh, trade unions. And if you look at uh, the writings of Leo XIII, uh, for example, this is a, a deep concern, and it, because it's true that what they were, what they were, the Marxists were trying to do at this time is uh, infiltrate uh, labor unions throughout uh, Europe and, uh, for lack of a better expression, evangelize uh, workers to become uh, good communists. And so this is, uh, Leo XIII is very aware of this and condemns these attempts uh, in his uh, encyclicals. Um, practically, before the Second World War, the chief way that uh, communism and the church came into uh, conflict was through uh, Soviet support for the uh, Spanish Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. And in the first uh, months of the Spanish Civil War in 1936, some 7,000 priests and religious, it's not even counting uh, laymen, uh, are murdered, and I was, uh, again, in the, doing the research for this, I found that there are over a thousand now priests and religious and laymen who have been uh, beatified uh, by the popes as martyrs for the faith during the uh, Spanish Civil War. And in 1937, Pius XI issues uh, two important significant uh, encyclicals. The first uh, is uh, Brennan der Zorge with Burning Anxiety, which is his encyclical in German, of course, uh, condemning Nazism. And the second one, uh, which comes out a week or two uh, later, is Divini Redemptoris, which is his encyclical condemning communism. 
Now it's very, I mean, can you imagine a pope uh, issuing an encyclical in 2015 condemning a very specific political ideology which had control of a very specific state? It's unthinkable. So this is, this is a highly significant uh, event in the history of Catholic social doctrine, that the Pope thinks it is important to condemn a whole political philosophy and a whole uh, existing regime because it is so fundamentally opposed to uh, everything that uh, the church teaches. And he says uh, in that encyclical that the communists constitute the most persistent enemies of the church, who from Moscow, again, he's naming names, from Moscow are directing the struggle against Christian civilization. And he's chief thinking in this context of, uh, of Spain. So in this uh, first lecture, though, uh, I want to focus on the theoretical aspects of the conflict between uh, Catholicism and uh, communism and their contrasting views of uh, the common good. And then toward the end, I'll introduce uh, some more about the uh, practical conflict as it emerges in the 1940s when several countries with substantial Catholic populations came under communist uh, domination. And then in the second lecture, I'll place greater emphasis on the concrete political struggle between uh, Catholicism and communism in the post-World War II era, uh, concluding then with a kind of uh, John Paul II's theoretical post-mortem on communism in Centesimus Annus in 1991. So I mentioned that the popes condemned communism in several encyclicals in the 1800s and 1900s, uh, and I've mentioned already Leo XIII's uh, Rerum Novarum, which comes out in 1891, and Pius XI's Divini Redemptoris, which comes out in 1937. And so in this uh, summary of uh, the, the differences between uh, communism and Catholicism, I'll chiefly be drawing upon those two encyclicals, although, uh, I'm, I'm, again, it's very, it's, it's, it's really one of the most, people forget this now because it's, uh, you know, the Cold War has been over for over 25 years now, that people forget how central to church history and to Catholic social doctrine the struggle with communism uh, was. So again, there's, there's much, much more that you could say about this, but I'm just going to focus on a few uh, central themes. And uh, those will be uh, the, the communist idea versus, of the class struggle, as opposed to the Catholic idea of the common good. Communist uh, equality versus Catholic complementarity. And the abolition of private property versus uh, property rights. So first, for communists, the governing dynamic of history is class struggle. And in the modern age, that class struggle takes place between the bourgeoisie or capitalists or employers on the one hand, and the proletariat or the industrial working class or employees on the other. These two classes, according to communists, cannot be reconciled. 
and their struggle is literally a struggle to the death, which is supposed to culminate in a violent revolution in which the proletariat exterminates the bourgeoisie. In opposition to this idea of class struggle, Catholic social doctrine says that the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or capital and labor, need one another in order to prosper. Owners of capital need a people to work on their capital. And working men who do not own capital need someone to pay them in exchange for their labor. So the two classes need one another, and the popes say that they should work together for their mutual economic benefit. And Marx, it's worth noting, actually says that uh, those who provide capital uh, for workers to work on, or even uh, foremen who, uh, who oversee or manage workers, uh, add nothing to the process of production and are entitled to uh, none of the proceeds of economic productivity because, you know, in exchange for their over uh, or what have you. The second major difference between uh, communism and Catholicism is that a communist society is one in which there, theoretically at least, is uh, absolute equality. As Marx uh, says, uh, from each according to his ability and to each according to his uh, need. And this uh, collective good is, again, theoretically supposed to be a complete material equality without private property. Uh, Leo XIII, in particular, drawing upon uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who himself was drawing upon uh, Aristotle and um, uh, Aristotle's critique of Plato, recognized that this is a bad idea. And he said, this is in uh, Quod Apostolici Moneris, the inequality of rights and of power proceeds from the very author of nature, from whom all paternity in heaven and earth is named. For he who created and governs all things has, in his wise providence, appointed that the things which are lowest should attain their ends by those which are intermediate, and these again by the highest. Thus, even in the kingdom of heaven, he hath willed that the choirs of angels be distinct, and some subject to others. And so also in the church has instituted various orders and a diversity of offices, so that all are not apostles or doctors or pastors. So also has he appointed that there should be various orders in civil society, differing in dignity, rights, and power, whereby the church, whereby the state, like the church, should be one body consisting of many members, some nobler than others, but all necessary to each other and solicitous for the common good. And so the idea is that each person 
has a specific vocation and contribution to uh, make to the common good. And this means that, again, in the early days, the popes are uh, more straightforward and just saying this means that people are not equal. T today, in the contemporary languages, it, not to say that people are unequal, but that they're complementary in various ways. But the idea is the same, that, that everyone has a specific vocation. These vocations are not the same, and they complement uh, one another in this kind of graded uh, hierarchical order in society, completely different from uh, the communist notion. The third major difference then uh, between communism and Catholicism is that uh, related to the second is that communists believe that private property must be abolished, which uh, practically speaking means that all property uh, belongs to uh, the state. And I, I always love telling my students when I uh, teach them about this because they're, uh, so I, I was born in 1975, so I was 14 when the, uh, you know, Berlin Wall came down, and so I am old enough to remember, uh, you know, uh, this. And but my my students now are all born after the end of the the Cold War, and this is all practically ancient history, uh, you know, to them. It's it's mind-boggling. And um, but they do remember this kid called uh, Elian Gonzalez, and I, I use this to illustrate this this point that every all property belong everything belongs to the state in communism that that Elian Gonzalez was this uh, kid who, uh, whose mom, I mean, he was little when this happened in the, I guess, late 90s. Uh, you all remember this, you know, but he, you know, he lands in uh, Florida, his mom dies en route, and if I remember correctly, the treaty with Cuba is crafted in such a way that if you land on, on the beach, you're home free. If you get picked up in the water, you go back to Cuba. and. Um, the uh, Castro regime trotted out his dad and even bought him like clothes that he could not possibly have afforded a, as a normal Cuban and put, you know, to say, oh, to make the kind of propaganda uh, claim in the media that he should be united with his dad. But the, they never shrank from the, the formal uh, legal claim that Elian Gonzalez should be returned to Cuba because he's the property of, of the Cuban state, the communist state. And uh, again, this I, and th that's in you know, 1999, 2000, thereabouts. So th this idea is completely foreign to, to uh, you know, my students because they didn't grow up with this, but they, they were deadly serious uh, about this. Um, and actually, I should mention, it's uh, sad from what I understand, uh, now Castro has really uh, lavished all kinds of uh, goodies and privileges on Elian Gonzalez, and he's apparently now, I mean, he's, I think, in his early to mid-20s, uh, maybe late 20s by now, and he's appar apparently a devout uh, communist, unfortunately. Uh, so anyway, there's no private property in communism. Everything, uh, as a practical matter, becomes the property of uh, the state. Uh, but Leo XIII pointed out, again, uh, drawing upon uh, Aristotle through Aquinas, that this re removes incentives to uh, work and actually increases uh, fighting over property. And uh, again, anecdotally, you, you all probably remember this, though my, uh, you know, my students uh, don't. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev taking, oh, I don't, I was 
uh, my parents were little when this happened, but Nikita Khrushchev taking his shoe off in the UN and, and pounding it on you know, the podium and saying, we'll bury you. And the context of this was that the claim that communism will actually outproduce capitalism, right? Because uh, in communism, people will get to keep the fruits of their labor. And in, in capitalism, you know, they're all being exploited. So obviously, they don't produce uh, as much. But again, it's, it's exactly the opposite, right? People uh, produce uh, far less uh, under communism than they do under uh, capitalism. Uh, because under capitalism, they do actually get to keep the fruits of their labor, and under communism, uh, they won't. And so uh, Leo warned that communism would actually make the workers uh, worse off by abolishing private property, and uh, he was right. And I'm tempted to give another anecdote, but I'm going to bite my tongue. This is, the, this is, again, another problem of doing this in two lectures, that there's so many great anecdotes and stories that you could tell about this. Um, that you can't cram into two, uh, two lectures. Um, uh, the other thing then is that people, people contribute more to the common good by taking care of the particular goods that they're responsible uh, for, including their private property. So private property is better cared for, even for the sake of the common good, when it's in the hands of individuals than it is uh, when it's in the hands of uh, the whole community. Uh, so those are kind of th uh, three differences between uh, communism and uh, Catholicism that are spelled out uh, by the popes. And there, there's a great summary in Divini Redemptoris, that 1937 encyclical, uh, by Pius XI, where he, he sums up all the theoretical uh, problems with communism. And it's, it's such a great uh, passage that I, I have to read it in full. He says the doctrine, I mean, this, this, is, uh, this is absolutely correct. I couldn't say it any, uh, any better. The doctrine of modern communism, which is often concealed under the most seductive trappings, is in substance based on the principles of dialectical and historical materialism, previously advocated by Marx of which the theoreticians of Bolshevism claimed to possess the only genuine interpretation. According to this doctrine, there is in the world only one reality, matter, the blind forces of which evolve into plant, animal, and man. Even human society is nothing but a phenomenon of form and form of matter evolving in the same way. By a law of inexorable necessity and through a perpetual conflict of forces, matter moves towards the final synthesis of a classless society. In such a doctrine, as is evident, there is no room for the idea of God. There is no difference between matter and spirit between soul and body. There is neither survival of the soul after death, nor any hope in a future life. Insisting on the dialectical aspect of their materialism, the communists claim that the conflict which carries the world towards its final synthesis can be accelerated by man.
Hence, they endeavor to sharpen the antagonisms which arise between various classes of society. Thus, the class struggle, with its consequent violent hate and destruction, takes on the aspects of a crusade for the progress of humanity. On the other hand, all other forces, whatever, as long as they resist such systematic violence, must be annihilated as hostile to the human race. And of course, uh, he's thinking of the church there as a force that communists would deem as hostile to the human race and enemies of progress. Okay, so let that serve for our overview of uh, principles of Catholicism and communism that bring them into conflict uh, with one another. And again, you, there's plenty that you could add uh, to those things. Uh, now what I'd like to uh, do is start to look at the practical conflict between them. Marx famously said that religion was the opiate of uh, the masses. And by that, he meant that religion was a kind of drug that reconciled people to their sufferings in this life by promising them happiness in the next life if they followed uh, rules laid down for them by priests. Right? So the idea is that uh, Catholicism and religion in general are uh, things that are invented ultimately by uh, the bourgeoisie as something to kind of control uh, people and make them uh, not realize how bad things uh, really are, to make them not realize that they're being uh, oppressed and uh, not question existing social structures and hierarchies and so on. So Marx thought that communism would cure the masses of their addiction to uh, this drug by making them realize that uh, life in this world is the only life we have, and that communism will make uh, the world a better place for those who are oppressed. So when the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917, they set about trying to destroy religion in an effort to uh, liberate the people. So there's World War I breaks out in uh, 1914. By uh, you know, spring of 1917, the Russian state, the Tsarist state, is uh, uh, very weak. There's, uh, there's actually an initial revolution then in the spring of 1917 that's not really resisted even by uh, supporters of Tsarism because the regime is so weak. And then later on in, in uh, October 1917, there's actually the second Russian Revolution, which is the, uh, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution. And targeting the church wasn't there, the Bolsheviks uh, or the Russian communists' uh, first goal, uh, but it was an important part of their uh, agenda. And their chief target uh, was the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. But they also went after the Catholic Church in Russia, uh, such as it was. In addition to being a religious institution, the Catholic Church had the uh, disadvantage of also being seen as a uh, foreign institution. When the communists seized power in Russia, there were roughly uh, half a million Catholics 
They're served by about 250 priests. They were organized into two dioceses and ran about 150 uh, schools. And the communists very quickly expelled the two bishops, uh, arrested uh, many of the priests, and murdered others. Now, by the early 1920s, so the Russian Civil War then goes on from 1917 to uh, 1921, and by the early 1920s, agriculture in what was now the Soviet Union had been destroyed by World War I, the Civil War, and then uh, communism and what was called uh, war communism. So communism is opposed to private property, as I mentioned, because if you have private property, uh, you'll get more than others, and not everyone will get uh, what they need, according to the communists. And uh, very, very early when they seized power, they passed a law abolishing private property. Nobody paid any attention to this in 1917 because nobody uh, necessarily knew that they were going to uh, seize power. But they made good on that law uh, over time. And uh, so during the Civil War, for example, they would requisition uh, food for the uh, Red Army. And the result of all of this, again, the, the war, the Civil War, and then the beginnings of the imposition of uh, communism in the economy is uh, famine, in which millions of people die. And uh, Pius XI, uh, who becomes pope in 1922 and reigns till 1933, actually established a papal uh, famine relief mission in 1922 to bring aid to uh, starving people in the Soviet Union. And that uh, relief mission was led by an American Jesuit named Edmund Walsh. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his uh, name. He was the uh, he, or he is the, the man after whom Georgetown's uh, Foreign Service School uh, was named. Now, papal support for famine relief uh, brought little relief for the church in the Soviet Union uh, because the communists used the famine as uh, an excuse for stealing church property, especially Russian Orthodox uh, church property, but the property of other churches too. Uh, and basically what they would do is steal uh, you know, sacred objects, sacred vessels from uh, you know, churches that were made out of precious metals and uh, melt them down and try and convert them to uh, cash. So through the 1920s, uh, the Soviet Union went about uh, trying to cut itself off from uh, the rest of the world to consolidate the revolution within Russia. And so the church was mostly cut off from what was going on in the Soviet Union. It was very difficult to communicate with Catholics there. Pius XI established the uh, Pontifical Russian College, or Rusikum, in 1929 to prepare priests for ministry and evangelization uh, in the Soviet Union. And one of its graduates was uh, another American Jesuit, a Polish-American, named Walter Czizek. Uh, again, some of you have probably uh, heard of him. 
he was uh, ordained in uh, both the uh, Roman and Eastern rites and went to Poland uh, to work as a priest in the late 1930s. And he's there when the Soviets invade Poland in 1939, just a couple of weeks after uh, the Nazis invaded Poland from the other side. And he remained in the Russian uh, zone of occupation in order to administer the sacraments and evangelize. But he was arrested in 1941 as a Vatican spy uh, and spent over a decade in uh, Soviet prison camps before being released. And, it's, and so basically while he's in uh, the gulag, he's trying to find ways to celebrate mass and administer the sacraments to people. He's released, he, does, you know, he sets up shop wherever he goes in the Soviet Union try, you know, trying to uh, say mass and, and connect with uh, Catholics uh, there. And eventually they, and then basically what happens is, right, the communists figure out that he's doing this surreptitiously and they stop him and they move him you know, to the next place. He ends up in, um, becoming an auto mechanic, and um, what happens is that he becomes the best auto mechanic in uh, his whole shop and in his whole town, because, not just because he's a Jesuit, uh, but, but, but also because, uh, he, you know, as he says, there was no incentive for working and no punishment for not working. So these guys would, you know, sit around and do nothing in the garage all day, and he would, he would work. So he ended up, that's you know, the fundamental way in which he ended up becoming uh, the best mechanic in the shop and, uh, and in the town, right? So again, it's kind of, uh, it's living proof of what Leo XIII said, that, that people are not gonna be motivated uh, to work if this happens. So uh, eventually, he, um, is able to make contact with relatives back in the U.S. and um, the Kennedy administration arranges for him to be exchanged uh, for uh, two Soviet spies. And again, it kind of reflects this idea of the communists that he's a Vatican spy or an American spy, so we just exchange him for other spies. Right? And if you haven't, uh, I saw some you know uh, nods and things when I mentioned his name. If you haven't read his book with God in Russia. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's really an amazing story, and it's uh, still in print. Uh, Ignatius Press uh, publishes it. Now, the Soviets, uh, for their part, uh, made successful attempts uh, to, or sort of successful attempts, to infiltrate the Holy See uh, during World War II. And again, this is kind of the uh, the battle, as it were, is brewing, and so they're not really fighting in the way that they're going to sort of dur during World War II or especially after World War II. But, and of course, we would say that the Holy See is spying on the Russians because they're not. Uh, but the Russians are definitely, or the Soviets are definitely trying to spy on, uh, on the church. And again, just to use one example, they infiltrate uh, an Estonian who converted to Catholicism and uh, entered the Jesuits. Uh, he, so he enters the Jesuits. Uh, he's in the Jesuits for five years or so before they decide that he doesn't have a vocation. Um, yeah, but he stays in Rome, and because, you know, because he has unique language skills, he becomes a translator for the Congregation for Eastern Churches in 1941. His name is Alexander Kurtna. 
And as a translator for the congregation, Courtna had access to Vatican documents uh, concerning the state of the church in uh, the Soviet Union. So after a trip, so again, in, during the war, the, the, uh, the boundaries are su surprisingly fluid. So Courtney ends up managing to go back to Estonia at various points and even to the Soviet Union. Uh, but he's picked up by the Italians in 1942, who of course at, at this time are uh, German allies, right? So they're, they're not really particularly interested in, in protecting the Holy See, but they are interested if there's a Soviet agent operating uh, on Italian soil, and he's picked up and imprisoned. Uh, but Courtenau was kind of smart uh, and, and cultivated uh, German contacts too, kind of half spying on them and half using them as a, a, as a potential uh, uh, way of escaping in case he was caught. And so when, when the Mussolini regime uh, collapses and the Germans then move into uh, Rome and actually occupy uh, Italy, Courtney's German uh, allies uh, or friends in uh, Rome don't, you know, the Germans didn't really have a whole lot of success in uh, penetrating the Holy See, but they know Courtney uh, did, so he connects then with the Germans and is a German spy in the Vatican uh, for a little while. Then he gets, um, now almost feel bad for this guy, but not really. He, then what happens is, of course, the Germans uh, don't last very long, and in Italy, so he's arrested by the Italians again, except this time they're, they're with the Allies. It's the same guys, actually, who pick him up, but now they're working for the Allies. So he gets thrown into jail, and eventually he's released, and he's actually kidnapped on the streets by Soviet agents who take him back to the Soviet Union, and he gets sent to the Gulag for uh, working for the Germans, you know, which he you know, deserved richly, I suppose. Um, and then he gets released after a while and becomes a translator of uh, like German literature and, and so on. It's kind of uh, weird. There, again, there are all kinds of these weird stories uh, or lives that people have um, during these times. So the point is, though, that the, that the Soviets are making uh, serious efforts. They, they, they think of the Holy See as, uh, as an enemy, and they're making serious efforts to try and uh, infiltrate the um, the Holy See and uh, and gain, gain information on what um, uh, the popes are uh, up to. Now, Monica, how am I doing on time? Okay, okay, good. So, um, uh, so the war then ends, of course, in um, in 1945. But before it's over. Um, of course, there's the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, and one of the results of this uh, conference is that the Soviets uh, gain uh, unchallenged control over the rest of Eastern Europe, and especially uh, Poland. And this is a kind of bitter irony, because it's actually uh, the German invasion of Poland in uh, September of 1939 that finally causes the British and French to abandon appeasement. So again, the kind of the, the pretext is that obviously there are larger issues involved, but the pretext is they're going to war to uh, defend the freedom of Poland, and then they, they kind of betray uh, the freedom of Poland uh, after the war, and it comes under Soviet control. And I'll just to foreshadow a little bit uh, for next time, it's one of the things, you know, 
Uh, Poles obviously did not, you know, knew about this and were not happy about it. It was all, also something that was always condemned by uh, American conservatives, actually. And when uh, John Paul II and Reagan uh, meet, they bond over this mutual conviction that Yalta was profoundly uh, un unjust. And uh, it's, again, this is, you know, foreshadowing or whatever. Reagan is always, even at this time in the 40s, a true believing anti-communist in a way that other people uh, simply are not. And that really uh, shows when, when he becomes uh, president. So, um, so the result of Yalta then is that, um, that Soviet control of Eastern Europe is confirmed by the uh, British and the Americans. And what happens in the course of the late 1940s, of course, is that the Soviets uh, consolidate their control over these countries by conducting uh, show trials, by murdering political opponents, and holding corrupt elections in which the communists always win with 90% plus uh, of the vote. Right? And I'll, I'll talk some more about that um, uh, on, um, well, a week from now. Uh, but because, so, th so this is all going on, uh, basically these persecutions and everything, and around the same time there's an election in uh, Italy in 1948. Italy and France both have very large, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's strange. Uh, there are no communist parties with popular support in Eastern Europe, but there are po communist parties with popular support in France and Italy. <laughs> and so uh, there's a fear then, while all this stuff is going on in, in Eastern Europe and the Soviets are, are murdering people and arresting them and, and putting their guys uh, who basically uh, spent the war, communists from Eastern Europe who spent the war hiding out in Moscow are now becoming presidents of, of these of these countries, there's a fear that the Soviets are going to use the uh, Communist Party in Italy to uh, try to seize power there. There's also then, the, the so that's a concern for the church, obviously, because the Pope is in uh, Rome. There's also a concern on, on the part of the United States, because if communists seize control of Italy, uh, they potentially have naval bases then in the Mediterranean. Again, in 1948, there's the, the Greek Civil War that's going on, and one of the things is at stake there is that if you, keep, um, uh, if you keep Greece from going communist, you can kind of keep the Soviets bottled up in the, in the Black Sea. Although it's interesting, I was just listening to um, something on uh, yesterday where somebody was saying that the Soviets, is act, it's actually uh, Tito and the Yugoslav communists who support the communists in Greece and not Stalin because Stalin basically says, we don't have a navy really right now and so it's not worth creating, you know, creating problems with the allies by backing the Greek communists because we don't really have anything to put in Athens or whatever if we had a naval base there. Uh, but, but obviously the allies, uh, uh, don't know this, and there's a deep concern of the, um, what may happen if the communists seize power in Italy in 1948. And uh, Pius XII makes it clear uh, before the election that Catholicism and communism are uh, incompatible. There are bishops who say that it would be a mortal sin to vote for uh, the communists in the election. 
And uh, what happens is the Christian Democratic Party ends up winning an overwhelming majority. Uh, and then later in 1949, all members of the Communist Party are uh, excommunicated. Um, so, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the conflict between the church and communism, as I said, largely takes place at the theoretical level in the writings of communists and the teachings of uh, the popes. And um, this begins to change from a, a practical struggle, I'm sorry, from a theoretical struggle to a practical struggle when uh, Stalin gets enough, is kind of consolidated his control enough over the Soviet Union to begin to look uh, outward for new lands to conquer. Uh, World War II gives him this opportunity. And for the first time, the communists actually control countries that have large numbers of Catholics. And uh, they begin persecuting Catholicism in Eastern Europe in the late 40s. And this conflict is taken to a whole new level. But in one of those conquered countries, as we'll see next week, uh, Poland, uh, people uh, there, uh, especially Karol uh, uh, Wojtyla, who becomes John Paul II, will make, end up making a decisive contribution to the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.